Thank you. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask that you take them and uh, turn to Luke chapter 7 today. Luke chapter 7, and uh, beginning in about verse 36 is where we're going to start today. And if you have your Bibles this morning and you've already got Luke chapter 7 open, would you just say amen? Amen. All right, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word together. Today's message is called Brave Enough to Worship Him. Brave Enough to Worship Him. You know, worship requires courage. It requires bravery. It requires devotion and dedication that sometimes we don't think enough about. Today, as we look at the story of a Pharisee and a woman, uh, we're going to see some great insights into the act of worship itself. I'm going to begin looking at verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this is not out loud, this is what he's thinking. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So we're going to open that message today with just that scene, the setting of a scene to look at Uh, the entirety of what Jesus says here. Father, in Jesus' name, prepare our hearts for this scenario, for this real story that unfolds in the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, a real man, a real woman, who are the centerpieces of this story and the heart of worship or the lack of a heart of worship that's evident. I pray, God, that you would speak to us in a powerful way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated if you would. You know, in the Bible, as you walk through the Scriptures, there are numerous stories of women who stand out in powerful ways. In fact, uh, some of my favorite preaching is preaching about women of the Bible. The Proverbs 31 woman, Abigail, and David in the Old Testament, one of my favorites. Ruth, Naomi. We can read about and talk about Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. We can talk about all kinds of women in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, I, I would, I would at one point in the future like to preach a message series just on women. It wouldn't be just for women, but just on the incredible women in the Bible. And so every time I come to a passage that deals with a woman as a central character, I know there's going to be a, a tremendous amount for us to learn. Because there's something about a woman that understands worship and devotion and love in a unique and a powerful way. So today I want you to look at the things we talk about with this particular woman. Today I also want you to know that this text is really a text about worship, and there's a big contrast going on here. All the way through the Gospels, there's a contrast between self-righteousness and self-gratification. There are those that we'll encounter that are very self-righteous religious people like this Pharisee was. And then there will be people like this woman as we'll learn more about her in a few moments. She was known as a sinful woman, self-gratification. Her own pursuit of her own lifestyle and satisfaction was evident in her past. And there's a huge contrast between the two. You see this in a number of other characters in, in the Gospels. And so this passage positioned itself as a series of contrasts that we need to know about. But this time it all deals with the issue of worship. 
Now let me tell you something today that you need to know. You are a worshiper. You are a worshiper. You may not worship God today, but you worship. The word worship simply means to give worth to, to give value to, to see as credible or see as something that you would give yourself to. And we, we worship God. We are basically saying about God, you are worthy of my praise. You're worthy of my adoration. You're worthy of my life to be given to you, to be, my, to be the one I think about, to be the one I adhere to and follow. And when we worship something else, then we're saying that about something else. That pursuit, whether it be a sin and immorality, you're worthy of my worship, we're saying, to that sin or to that religious approach to life, which we'll see in this text. I read something the other day written by a man named David Wallace, I believe it's true. He said, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship or who to worship. He goes on and makes a statement, even though this is not a religious author. He makes a statement, a point that it's, it's wiser to worship God. And here's why he said. He said, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. It will consume you. And God will not consume you, but he'll give you life. And I want you to think about the idea of worship for these next few moments as we meet the characters of this story. First of all, meet Simon. Meet the Pharisee. Simon, in this particular text, is a Pharisee with an interest in Jesus only to entrap him. Like most of the Pharisees of that day, they resented Jesus who came in teaching and preaching in such a way they did not anticipate. They were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for a Messiah that fit their profile, and Jesus did not fit their profile. We had a whole series of messages in Luke, and we called those series, that series Rogue, not because Jesus was rogue, but because the religious leaders of that day, when they met a genuine man, a God-man, when they met Jesus as God in the flesh, they saw him as rogue, and they're continuing to look at Jesus as someone that they don't quite understand, but certainly he doesn't fit their profile. And so the Pharisees' goal at that point since he doesn't fit with them, is to try to trip Jesus up, try to make him lose credibility so that no one follows him. And you see this in various encounters in the Gospels. For example, when the lawyers come to Jesus and say, what is the greatest commandment? Knowing full well there were 639 commandments the rabbi gave. And Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So their attempts to try to trip Jesus up turned into some of the greatest lessons we learn in all the Bible, as will happen here today. The Pharisee had only one interest, to invite Jesus into his house and to somehow give Jesus an opportunity to trip up in his ministry or in his words. Pharisees hated that Jesus claimed to be God, hated the fact that he claimed to be able to forgive sin, hated the fact that he could raise people that were lame or make people who were blind have restored sight. So meet Simon for a moment and see the man present. Then I want you to meet the woman. We don't have the name of the woman. She's only known as a sinful woman. And by all the indications of Scripture, she is a sinful woman as in a prostitute. She is a professional adulteress. She is immoral at the very least. 
And our indication from looking at the script and the text is that at some point in the past, she has already encountered Jesus. She's already met him. She already knows something about Christ. And so she burst into the scene on that particular day because of something Christ has said and done in her life, which we'll reveal in just a few moments. And as you look at both of these characters today, Simon and the sinful woman, I want you to notice some things about worship that Jesus wants us to have today. Since we're worshipers, since we all will worship something or someone, since worship is that act of giving worth or value to that which we worship, here's what we need to know about true worship of a living God. First of all, this text teaches us that worship requires moving away from yourself. Moving away from yourself. If you look at verse 39, a verse we've already read, it says the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to his home, saw the woman coming in and kneeling over Jesus' feet. And he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And he's just purporting that ongoing struggle that we see all the way through the Gospels that continues on to this day. And here's the contrast that's being painted here. On one side is the man, Simon, who is a legalist. Legalism is the only thing he knows. Legalism is outwardly religious but inwardly unchanged. Legalism is having an outward set of standards by which we gauge ourselves and everyone else's spirituality. So here's a Pharisee, a man who was able to keep the outward form of the religion, who worshiped in the synagogue regularly, who knew the law, who was interacting with other teachers and rabbis, and because of that, he felt that he was righteous in and of his own good work. He was a legalist, and he had no real relationship with God, or he would have recognized the Son of God who came. On the other side of that picture is what we call license. Legalism has one extreme, license is the other. You say, well, what in the world is license? License is a shortened form of licentiousness, which means to be given over to pleasure and self-will. This woman was one who'd been given over to that very same lifestyle, pleasure and self-will. And interestingly enough, we have those two extremes in every church across America today. On the one side, people living just clean enough to be seen as spiritual, so long as they go to church and give and serve, but perhaps they have no love for God. Perhaps they have no heart for worship. And they point to the one that is given to sin, the one who is into license as the real problem, just like was happening in this house. Those living in license, on the other hand, like this woman has, maybe have seen legalism. They've seen that outward, hypocritical, religious person and say, that's not real. That's not what I want to be. And so they give up on the whole idea of pursuing a relationship with God because they've seen that negative influence of a legalistic, hard-hearted individual unchanged on the inside. So we have this contrast. They run all the way through this story and many others. What's the end result of a legalist? Well, legalism causes a person to be dry, dead, mean. Legalists beat people up with their religion, just like this Pharisee is intended to do with Jesus. I, I call legalists in this day and time people who end up being meaner than junkyard dogs. 
Now, I use that phrase a lot, and it's because I think there's some reality behind that phrase. Have you ever been to a junkyard where there was a dog guarding everything? I have, and I've actually had to run from a junkyard dog before. Meaner than junkyard dog means something to me. It means someone out to get you. It means someone that's watching as you move into their territory, making them uncomfortable, making them a little hacked off at you, and they're going to use every tool in their possession to make you look bad. They will hit you over the head with a Bible. They will somehow accuse you in some way because what they want to do is put you in your place. And legalists are mean, they're cold, they're hard, and they are far from God. There are legalists in this room today. Some of you live your life with an outward form of religion, but you have no love for God. You have no heart for God. Therefore, you have no worship for God. You would just as soon worship religion as you would God. In fact, you would more quickly embrace religion because you understand it. You know how to play the game. You know how to say the word. You know how to check the boxes that people check to make you be seen as righteous. And in reality, all legalism is is a standard or a set of self-righteousness, which Jesus condemned all through the Scripture. On the other hand, there are license, those who are given to license in this room. And I know this about those who are given over to sin, who will not worship God because they will not give up their sin. You will only hang around for a certain amount of time. You won't hang around long. And the reason you won't stay long is because the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, points you to a holy life. And you're not willing to give up your ability, your license to sin, your license to licentiousness. You don't love him enough to do that. And so because of that, you will often use the legalist to stay away from the real relationship with Christ. You'll blame them for keeping you away. The hypocrites in the church keep you from God, you say, but in reality, your heart keeps you from God. So we have legalism. We have license. And let me just say this to you today, if you're on one side or the other of that, you're both wrong, dead wrong. And Jesus calls both to him. Is that the beauty of Jesus? Beauty, the beauty of Jesus is he calls out to those legalist, religious, inwardly dead, outwardly clean people and says, come to me and I can make you clean and whole and I can give you love and life. And he says the same thing to someone that's given over to sin and they know that that sin is eating them alive. It's destroying everything about their life. And Jesus calls them away from that with the promise of forgiveness and new life. And that's what he's doing with these two. But the truth is neither one of them worship and both are called away from their life of legalism or license. Worship requires you to move away from yourself. And every time you come into a worship center to worship God, every time you get on your knees to worship in prayer and thanksgiving to God, you are required to move away from yourself and your self-sufficiency and your self-dependence and your self-world in order to come into God's presence. And you need to do that. Secondly, this text teaches us that worship requires humility and servitude. I love how this story unfolds. If you read on in verse 40 through verse 46, it's powerful. Jesus answered to the, uh, to the Pharisee named Simon. He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. If you remember, the Pharisee is thinking to himself, 
that if Jesus was really a prophet, then he would know this woman was an immoral sinner kind of woman. He wouldn't be happy with her presence in the room, but Jesus answered him. I love the fact that Jesus always takes the circumstance and does something different with it than what we think he's going to do. Instead of agreeing with Simon and saying, Simon, you're right, I do know she's an immoral woman. He doesn't do that. He says, wait a minute, I've got something to say to you. What an amazing thing. And he replied, say it, teacher, verse 41, the money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. By the way, a denarii would be the equivalent of one day's wages. When they were both unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which will love him more? Simon answered and said, and I think he's a little precarious here. He's a little afraid to step into this question because he wonders if it's a trick question. The trickster himself is a little worried. So he says, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Are you looking at her? Do you know what she's doing right now? I'm not asking you, Simon, are you aware of what she was doing a week ago or a month ago? or a year ago. I'm not asking you if you know her reputation. I'm asking you, do you see her at this very moment? What is she doing? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. What a powerful, powerful story and contrast continues. This is one of those moments where on the internet sometimes I'm watching different videos and in our very political world we have people doing videos and interviews and, and one gets owned by the other. Have you ever seen those videos where someone is arguing and debating some political point and one gets owned by the other or the other phraseology is they get schooled or, or this person destroys the other or, or this one right here has an instant regret if they ask the question. All these are happening with Simon. Because Simon says in his mind, if this man were a prophet, he would know. And at that moment, the prophet, Jesus himself, has read Simon's mind and said, Simon, I have say, something to say to you. Now, the sound you hear is total silence and then a big gulp. He swallows hard. Oh, not only does he know about this woman, but he knows what I just thought. Now, that's pretty scary. I got to tell you, I'm glad none of you can read my mind. And at this moment, you're saying, I'm glad the preacher can't read my mind. I'm glad nobody can read my mind, but the bottom line is Jesus does read your mind. He knows exactly what you think, and it makes us very wary about what we think, right? We should be concerned about what we think. Jesus schools this guy. He has a point to make. Worship requires us to acknowledge God as we approach him, and I want you to see how these two approached Jesus. On the one hand, Simon he doubts Jesus and tries to trap him. Simon's approach to Jesus when he invites him to his home is the moment Jesus steps on to his property. He's questioning, he's looking for a gap. He's trying to trip him up, disprove his reality. He doubts Jesus and tries to trap him. He's gathering accusations in spite of the kindness of Jesus, in spite of the willingness for the Son of God to have a conversation with this man with a bad motive. In spite of that, He's trying to trip him up. On the other hand, there's this sinful woman, this amazing sinful woman. 
as she is boldly, bravely coming in to see Jesus. Someone asked me the question this last week when they were reading through the Bible, reading for this week. They said, how is it that a woman like this would even be allowed in the house of a Pharisee? It's a great question. But the custom of that day is when you invited a rabbi to your home, the rabbi was going to have a meal with you and then he was going to speak words of God to you. And it was normal to leave the doors and windows open as an open invitation for any who were far from God or close to God to come hear the words of the rabbi. So we believe that this house door was open. This woman knew Jesus was going to be there. So she knows her reputation in the past. And in spite of that, and in spite of this religious company filled with accusations, she marches into that room to see the Lord Jesus Christ. She is pulled magnetically by the amazing power he has to forgive and to love in spite of her lifestyle. Put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Stack up the sin in your life and take an honest look at it. Look at how many times you failed God, failed yourself, failed others. Look at how many times you've made volitional decisions of your own will to go the furthest away from what's right and what's proper and good. And then think about how in the world you could possibly approach someone like Jesus. And it would have to be because you're extremely grateful for his amazing and forgiving spirit. And that's what's happening here. Look at Simon. He refused to serve Jesus in the most basic way. And at the heart of it, worship is serving it was customary in that day for the head of the house to arrange for three things when a guest came. If Jesus the rabbi were to come or any other guest, then you were to get your servants to get a big pitcher of water, cool water. And the first thing you would do would be pouring that cold water over the feet of the one walking those dusty roads to get to your house. So normally, in normal households, that would have taken place. The feet would be clean. Now then, there would be customary for you to give a kiss on the cheek in greeting, in respect. And then it would be normal for the anointing of someone's head with oil or perfume. That's just a way of saying, your presence graces me, blesses me. That's typical in Jewish households. None of those things took place in the household of Simon. Jesus was invited to dinner. Somehow they got to the dinner without any of those things taking place. No polite embrace, no invitation to have your feet clean, no invitation for the anointing or the kiss, no real greeting beyond, glad you're here, have a seat. Because this man does not at his heart have love for Christ at all. But look at the woman. There is a lavish display of affection and servitude. The Bible says she comes in behind Jesus. Do you notice what it says about that up in the earlier passages? Standing behind him at his feet, verse 38, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And so the picture would be that, 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 that those who were eating were reclining at very low tables. And so Jesus is reclining, resting an elbow on the table as the rest of the guests are. His feet are displayed behind him. And as this woman comes in, she falls at the feet of Jesus, just behind him, just over his feet, and she begins to weep, the Bible says. She's not crying, she's weeping. This is a gusher. This is where everything comes unglued. Everything comes out at that moment. You know what that's like. There's a difference between a tear and a cry and then what women call an ugly cry. I have no idea what that means. 
This is probably an ugly cry. This is probably where tears are coming out because there are so many tears. His feet are wet, wet enough to wash his feet. And it requires her hair to dry his feet. So she bursts when she sees Jesus. She remembers something that's happened between them and the sense of forgiveness. She wipes her tears with his feet. She's abandoned to show affection, to show servitude, to show love. You know, when I think about women who demonstrate that kind of love for our Savior, I think about two in particular in my life. One was my mother. My mother passed away more than 20 years ago. But, but I, that was a woman that was as godly of a woman as I'd known. The woman who loved the Lord, served the Lord, served her family, and had some heroic, incredible, courageous kinds of decisions in her life. I remember watching my mom when she would play the piano because my dad was a pastor and she would play the piano. And that was kind of standard in the Baptist church back then in small churches. You called a pastor who had a wife who could play the piano, right? That's how you did it. Two for one, they used to call it. And I can remember her playing the piano and I'd be watching her and just watching her eyes when she worshiped and sang because my mom would sing and worship. She played by ear. She didn't look at music sheets. She didn't look at the notes. She would just play and she would worship. And I would watch her and I would think, what is it that's going on inside of her heart that makes her look like she's so in love with God? Later on, I realized she was in love with God. I remember breaking in unexpectedly into her room when she was praying for my brother and I. And boy, if that's not a momentous occasion when you walk in on your mom shedding tears for you and praying for you and asking God to touch your heart and to turn your heart. And I don't know how many times my mom did that, but I saw it enough to know it was real, it was ongoing. Her love for God meant that she wanted her kids to love God the same way. I then... 39 years ago, I married a woman. It was a woman of prayer. Kim has this place in our closet that is her place where she prostrates herself before the Lord. More than once, I've accidentally gone in there. Tears are flowing down her face. There's this chair that Kim gave me for Father's Day about 10 years ago, this big, wonderful, so comfortable, big, soft, uh, tan leather chair that's supposed to be my chair that she took over after she gave to me. It's where she has her quiet time. Her Bible is on that little, uh, arm, that big armrest next to the, the, the chair. I never sit in that chair anymore because it's her chair. She looks like she's 10 when she sits in that big chair. She's so small and it's so big. But I watch her devotion. Rarely does they go by when she doesn't spend an hour or two with the Lord. Devotion, affection, worship. Man, let me say a word to you today. There's something that women have in their love for God that we don't often have as easily. There's something about their ability to break the barrier. We're, we're trying to be tough. We're trying to be cool. There's no pretense with a woman. They're real. They'll weep. They'll cry out. They'll shout at God if that's where they are in their lives because they have this amazing relationship with God that's so intimate Relationship means something to them. And every time we come to a passage in the Bible that, that focuses on a woman, that's what you see. You see this amazing passion for a relationship with God the Father. And you see that in this woman right here. 
And men, we do well to look at that example and to learn from that example and, to, and maybe aspire to have that kind of intimacy with our God. They are examples for us. Look at Simon again. He felt he had little to be forgiven of because of his legalism and his self-righteousness. She, on the other hand, knew she had been forgiven much. Now, as you study this text, you'll find something peculiar about the phrases that have the word forgiveness in them as they relate to the woman. They are all in the perfect tense, not the present tense. And the Greek, present tense means something that's happening right now in an ongoing way. But the perfect tense, which we find these verbs for forgive, uh, they simply mean that something has happened in the past that has ongoing impact. Something has happened in the past with this woman that has ongoing impact as it relates to forgiveness and worship. She has encountered Jesus at some point. She has found forgiveness with Jesus at some point. The self-righteous Pharisee is unwilling to forgive her, unwilling to let her move on. But she has moved on, and she is a worshiper while he is not. That's what's happened. America, Christianity values worship less and less and less. We become a little bit more like Simon than we have this sinful woman. How do you worship? I mean, with what attitude do you come? I mean, do you prepare yourself? Do you clear the schedule? Do you get your mind ready? That when you come to worship, whether it's in your closet or in a chair or at the car steering wheel and on the drive or when it's at the church with other people, are you fully there? Is Christ valued? Is he priority? You know, one of the greatest priorities we have is to worship the Lord our God first and foremost. But I would call you today to look less at the Pharisee and a whole lot more at the sinful woman today. I would call you today to look at what it means to worship once you realize how much you've been forgiven. Worship requires humility and servitude. It means you set the schedule for worship in your life and in your heart, and it's a big, big part of your schedule. Finally, I want you to know that worship requires awareness and honesty. The difference between those of us who are self-righteous and those of us who are self-gratifying is the self-righteousness. Self-righteous people hide their sins so well. Religious people hide their sins so well, and they rarely confess, but worship requires being real. Worship requires acknowledging sin and acknowledging need, and especially the need for forgiveness and grace. Real worship says, God, I've blown it so many times. I've sinned so often. I desperately, desperately need your grace. And when you're at that place, you're ready for worship. You're ready for a real encounter with a God who forgives. And that's where she is. If we have no sense of sinfulness or separation from sin, we have no way of loving much. You see, verse 47 says it all. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Past tense, past action, continuing consequences. For she loved much. But look at that last line. For he who is forgiven little loves little. Look at the phrase like this. He who is forgiven much loves much. Therefore, come to worship with an awareness of how much you've been forgiven, and you will worship. 
There have been times when I've been awakened in the middle of the night. I've shared these things with you before where I'm remembering times in my life where I have chosen to act in sin and in selfishness and for self. Times before I became sold out to Christ where I had whole seasons of sin and I, I would look at those. I'd wake up in the middle of the night remembering some of those things and I would be weeping literally at night being awakened from the memory of all those things. And at times I thought, well, that's just condemnation from the devil. And then I realized what was moving me towards remembering sin. When you have a good awareness of what Christ does for you is not condemnation, it's gratitude. I am grateful for what I've been forgiven of. As I wake up from those moments, grieved that I could ever get so far from God, grateful that he brought me back through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm ready to worship at three or four in the morning because I've been brought back by the blood of Jesus and so have many of you. That's this woman. That's where she is. Her reputation is immorality. Her reputation is a prostitute, a professional adulteress. But here she is remembering who she was and remembering who she is now. And who made her who she is now? Let's finish the chapter. Verse 49. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man? Who is this? Who even forgives sin? And we know what that woman was like before. But look at her now. And in contrast to this cold dead-hearted Pharisee, religious person. This is the woman we want to be like. Who is this that even forgives sin? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Past tense, perfect tense, past action, continuing impact. Go in peace. So where does it lead you? Well, let me just tell you today that the only place this can possibly lead you is to Jesus. If you're reading this text and you think that this leads you to religion, you've missed the whole point. If you think this leads you to the place of working hard, doing your best, checking off the do and don't list the way you're supposed to so you can feel self-righteous, you've missed everything I've just said. Go back and listen to the tape. You missed it. But if you, by conclusion of this message, say, this leads me to Jesus, you get it. You get it. Whether you're self-righteous, whether you see your righteousness or your spirituality based on how well you live the Christian life by your own power, by your own effort, by your own outward clothing, if you will, if you're not worried about the inside of your heart, Christ calls you away from that legalism to him. On the other hand, if you're living a life of license, given over to sin, given over to self, given over to will, your own will, Christ calls you away from that and to himself, here and now, today. Come to Jesus today. You see, the power of the gospel is that God's character is loving and merciful. That's why he sent Jesus, by the way, to demonstrate that to us. Loving, merciful, kind-hearted, forgiving, but he is a just judge. He will punish the guilty. And the offense of sin helps us understand that our sin has offended the holy God and has cut us off from him. You see, the Pharisee didn't get that, but the woman did. But the sufficiency of Christ, Jesus, his life, 
His demonstration, his words, he's the one that can forgive. You see, your forgiver is not an institution, it's not a church, it's not a religion, it's not a doctrine, it's not a magic formula, it's a person, Jesus. But you have to have a personal response to that. And your personal response must be to turn away from religion or legalism, or turn away from license or immorality, and come as fast as you can, and put your faith and trust in Christ, turning away from all else and coming and focusing on him. And it'll change your life. I'm going to ask that you bow your head for just a moment, close your eyes. I'm going to ask our prayer counselors to come to the front right now. And as they come, I'm going to ask that you stand facing the congregation just like I am. In a moment, I'm going to have a word of prayer and we're going to be dismissed. You're able to walk out or forward. And today, if God is speaking to you about a decision you need to make to become a worshiper like this woman, I urge you to come forward and not backward. Don't go out when you have a decision to make. Take a few moments and come and talk to one of these about making that first decision to come and place your trust in Christ, the forgiver of sin, or to come back. Maybe today you need to come back. Let today be the day you cease being the sinful woman and become the worshiping woman. Let today be the day you cease becoming the religious Pharisee and becoming the worshiping man or woman. Let it be today. I'm going to ask that you stand, and I'm going to close with a word of prayer. And after we say amen, I want you to respond. Father, today I thank you so much for the amazing privilege of opening your Bible, the Word. Thank you for Simon, and thank you for the sinful woman and their examples, and thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the forgiver and the one who calls us away from legalism and calls us away from license so that we might have forgiveness in you. So today, my prayer is that none of us would walk away still in our sins, still unaware of all that we need to be forgiven of, but that we would leave today being aware of how great you are and how great your mercy is. Help us to experience that today by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.